thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. Life is made up of many gorgeous moments. Cherish them all, big and small, with Blue Nile. Whether it's for yourself or a loved one, Blue Nile's unrivaled selection of expertly crafted fine jewelry and statement pieces help make all your moments sparkle. Blue Nile's experts are on hand to guide you, and their diamond guarantee ensures you get the highest quality at the best price. Celebrate a life well lived in the most radiant way and save up to 30% at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Evil communications corrupt good manners. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 41. You can always count on St. Paul to make a link between two Naked Reflections topics in one neat sentence. We recently discussed corruption, and this week we're talking about communications. And as St. Paul suggests, when communication goes wrong, bad things happen, which is why it's important to get communication right. Let's take as an example communicating the results of science research. There's a perennial challenge. Here's Stephen Curry of Imperial College London speaking on the Naked Scientist podcast, Scrutinising Science. We're back to the problem of needing to recalibrate our incentives to reward good, reliable science. That's not to say that we shouldn't shout about the really exciting stuff, the Higgs boson, or the development of genome editing, or in my case, work showing how norovirus replication gets kick-started in infected cells. But we also have to be honest about the fact that most scientific advances are relatively small. With me to discuss the art, sometimes dark art, of communications are Ed Williams, President and CEO of the largest communications agency in the world, Edelman. Ed was previously Head of Communications for the BBC and Reuters and is an advisor to the Crisis Group as well as a trustee of the Wolf Institute, so plenty for him to talk about and Professor Neil Mercer, Emeritus Professor of Education at the University of Cambridge, who has undertaken work on the development of early years communication skills, dialogue, and the use of language. Neil, or his wife, has come up with the term interthink. And being an advocate of interfaith dialogue myself, I'm looking forward to learning what this means. Ed, let's start by asking, how do you reconcile shouting about the exciting stuff with the complexities of truth-telling. Experts are often very good at communicating the specifics, their narrow field, to a highly kind of technical niche audience. They are sometimes less good, perhaps even quite bad, 
uh, explaining their work in a way that those not totally kind of immersed in it can understand or that it resonates with a kind of wider and broader audience. And then what you see is people sticking to their comfort zone and perhaps in academia, I mean, Neil will have an interesting perspective on this, communication sometimes, certainly to some, can be an afterthought. Now, there are obviously plenty of examples of the opposite. And actually, I don't inherently think that exciting storytelling is somehow kind of in tension with truth-telling. So, I mean, look at the last 12 months. Standout star for COVID is JVT, Jonathan Van Tam, actually known as JVT by many on the internet, the absolute king of analogies. He loves a football analogy or yogurt. I think he talked about Pfizer as being a bit like a yogurt. You can't put it in and out of a fridge constantly. I mean, an absolutely brilliant communicator at making quite complex scientific insights and breakthroughs understandable and relatable to the public. So I think it can be done. I think you can do both. So it sounds like it's a simple approach to communicating well. And Neil, you've been taking things back to their origins, back to very, very young people and helping them with their communication. Is that the same for you? I'm a psychologist. So my interest really is between the relationship between language and thinking. And that language is this thing, this wonderful thing that we've evolved with as the human race, the only species that really has it, not just as a tool for giving information to other people, but for creating knowledge together. We don't just interact with language, we interthink, if it's used well. But we have to learn how to use it. You know, it's not like the bees that are just born with this way of communicating hardwired. And young people have to learn how to use spoken language well if they're going to use it to interthink and to get things done in the world. So that's been my interest, really. Just unpack interthink for us, because for someone who is, like myself, actively involved in interfaith, and we use that word inter a lot, what are you trying to get across there? I'm trying to get across that with language, what humans are able to do is create, if you like, a mega brain. We can link up our individual brains so that they're greater than the sum of the parts. And by doing so, we've been able to become, for better or worse, the dominant species of the world, because we can change our environment, not just adapt to it. And we do that typically like that. And in in the history of human thinking, there's been, I think, a rather false focus on the kind of lone genius. In fact, there hardly are any lone geniuses, because really, if you look around, you find that the best ideas and the most influential ideas have come from people working together. So like Newton, my own university, his theory of gravity wasn't really a theory of science until at least one other person understood what he was on about. And it only then became science. And likewise, lots of you know eminent people in all walks of life have really only got their ideas developed through like the Bloomsbury Group, Watson Crick and so on, the Beatles, you know, it wasn't just one of them. Uh, And I think that's what we are trying to make sense of, is how do people not only use language to create knowledge jointly together, but how can it work well or badly? And how can people be enabled to avoid, you know, using it badly? Neil, can I ask, do you think it's getting easier or harder 
because, you know, we're talking today with access to more information than anyone else in humankind has ever had in front of them, right? Yet seemingly, you know, we're also living in a world of information bankruptcy as well, that, you know, if nothing is true, everything is possible. And how do you, if you are the Beatles or if you are Newton, how do you get cut through these days? How is it possible to build that interthink when there are so many competing voices? There is that cacophony and there isn't the kind of precision that maybe you were talking about in the start of your remarks. You know, we've lost in some respects the art of editing. Is it easier or harder, do you think, now than in the past to get those ideas oxygenated? I haven't really thought about it quite in those terms, though it's a very interesting question. I think it's neither more difficult or easier. I think it's just different. Mm -hmm. I think you've just got different ways of getting information and different ways of communicating with people about it or with it. Does that make sense, Ed? I mean, it is a technological revolution that we're going through in terms of communication. But is it so very different than the creation of the printing press, for example, and coping and, and needing to develop a kind of literacy about that technology? I mean, I think on a certain level, I think you're right. We've been through these moments in time before these kind of information revolutions. You know, if you were trying to condense the last 20 years into a series of kind of consequential events, right? About 15 years ago, maybe a bit longer, 20 years ago, the internet essentially flipped the sort of classical model of hierarchy, information hierarchy on its head. In pre-internet, it was all top down, right? Elites had all the information and they would communicate the information down through traditional information systems, mass media and so on and so forth. It was, there was very little bottom up right? But the internet changed that. And suddenly there was bottom up and there was information flowed from a one-way pipe to a two-way pipe. We went from broadcasting to narrowcasting, right? That's the first thing that happened. The second thing is a result of that, we've had a complete dismantling of the traditional information system. So, you know, you've seen polarization as, as a result of that. You've seen a kind of collapse of public media. You've seen the rise of disinformation, misinformation in an industrialized way. Yes, it was true in the past. And we, there were plenty of historic examples of 18th, 19th century and before that of fake news. But it's been industrialized with the Internet. So you've had the Internet flipping the hierarchical pyramid. You've had the dismantling of mass information systems. As a result of that, more information flowing, push back against the system, push back against elites, could push back against multilateralism, this sense that the system is rigged, coinciding with a bunch of pretty terrible crises, the financial crisis being the biggest of all of them. And then out of that, this sense real and perceived of inequalities, um, health, education, income, geography playing a part of it, immigration fears, this sense of two systems, the have and the have-nots, then leading and creating the space for populism in some form or another and a whole set of false promises. I mean, that's the environment, by the way, that we went into COVID. I think that's quite different. Now, I think you'll have seen elements of that in the past, but in my mind, it's the convergence of all of those factors into actually in human history a relatively short period of time I'm talking about two decades that I think means that the world is actually quite profoundly different now yeah I agree it's different and I think the communication demands and expectations and problems as well as affordances are different part of something that's happened through history 
And this is the latest version. It's like just plus a change. It just keeps going on. And I think in the light of what you've said, young people need to be educated to analyse the way communications work, to analyse language in use, to deconstruct what politicians, advertisers, other people who put the things on the media say, so that they can sort of see through the blarney and uh, see how ideas are being manipulated to serve vested interests. And I think that's even more important nowadays. That should be part of every child's education. And I don't think it is yet. I still think there's some resistance in government and policymaking circles to that kind of innovative approach to education. I wonder if sometimes if that's because of vested interests. But nevertheless, I think it's something that needs to happen. I mean, I couldn't agree with you more. And I think the challenge, though, from public policy and a communications perspective is the difference between kind of intent and action. So we launched a few weeks back the 21st edition of our annual Edelman Trust Barometer. It's been around for 21 years now. And as you know, it measures institutional trust, so political, sort of governmental, media, NGOs, business. We talk about information hygiene. So, Neil, what can early learning do to manage this knowledge and this sort of lack of literacy or this need to separate the wheat from the chaff? One way we've found is a good way to do it, funnily enough, is to get them to do it together, you know, collaboratively, to use the interthinking facility, if you like, to do this. And what we've found is if you teach young people, typically from the age of six upwards, how to work together effectively, to reason together, able to interrogate each other as well as the information that's out there, they become better at reasoning tests. In a way, by developing their own reasoning skills, they then become able to apply these more and you end up with more critical, evaluative people who are also more creative because they can work with other people to find creative solutions. It's really interesting, this notion of actually how do we dial up kind of Socratic teaching? So how do, how do we make teaching much more about actually asking questions and working in groups to actually come to a point of view? I went to school in the 1970s and 80s. It didn't feel terribly Socratic then. But there are definitely lessons of building educational capabilities from the past. I absolutely agree we should be applying to the future kind of less rote and more questioning. And I suspect, Neil, you'd say there's probably a place for both, actually. I think asking good questions is exactly what we're trying to do here on Naked Reflections. You're listening to me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Ed Williams and Neil Mercer. And we're talking about communications. Here's an extract from the article, A Rebellion Against Science, on the Naked Scientist website. Unfortunately, as we all know, mass communication through the media is about attractive stories. Smashing down science and scientists or publicising a sensational view that flies in the face of overwhelming evidence makes a good story, no matter how much harm it does or how many children it may have killed in the case of MMR. False information and conspiracy theories have boomed since Martin Westwell wrote that article and social media have overtaken the now rather quaint-sounding mass media. I'd like to move on to this question of the post-truth society and its impact on our communications, because it's a, it's a real worry to those of us who are parents, how to help young people 
separate the false witness that's out there. You've talked about asking good questions just before the break, and you've talked about educational uh, philosophy, Neil. But just take us through an example of this, a specific example, both of you from your experience, Ed, in terms of dealing with the largest companies, politicians, organizations around the world, and you, Neil, in the classroom. Can you give us a specific example to navigate through this? What we typically get teachers to do is to say to young people, when you work in groups, what makes it good and what makes it bad? Why does it work well? And they say things like, what's bad about it? Oh, well, Trevor just talks all the time. And, and Ian never opens his mouth. He just looks the other way, uh, this sort of thing. And anyway, when Anne says something, she sounds like she's never listened to anybody else. So they say, and what makes it good? Well, when we all really focus on it, and, and I think my ideas have been respected, and, and you can get this kind of thing out of them. Let's agree a set of ground rules, a set of talk rules that you'll use when you're in your groups. We'll agree we'll all follow them and we'll put them on the wall. And it's things like we'll all take turns, we'll all listen properly to each other, give an opinion, we'll give reasons for it. If we don't think something's right, we'll respectfully disagree and it goes on. And they end up with about six or seven. And then they do it. And what we find then is when they do that, not only does it genuinely transform the quality of discussions, but they get better answers. One of my colleagues, Christine Howe, found that when groups work well like that, children get better answers in maths and science working together, and they remember more what they learned. So you've got all that, and they've also learned a life skill, which employers say they want. And so in that way, you've got a very practical implementation of the research we've done. It applies in, in the Zoom world as much as the real world. I mean, we're all following, thank goodness, ground rules here, which are that we're taking turns. We're not interrupting each other. We're trying to build on what the previous person said, and we're trying to follow that up. We're trying to interthink, aren't we? And we know how to do it, it appears, but not everyone would have the experience to do that unless they help develop those kind of skills. I mean, to build on, Neil, what you were saying, but first to kind of slightly take it, Back, Ed, to your the point you made about the environment that we're in now and the rise of misinformation and disinformation and what that means, whether you're in academia, whether you're an educationalist, whether you're in business or science or politician. I mean, it is deeply, deeply challenging. I mean, I think we are now seeing, I don't know, Neil, if you agree, we're seeing the real world effects of this information bankruptcy, right? I mean, I was jabbed by the Pfizer jab last week. I'm very pleased to say that I haven't turned into Bill Gates, although my dancing, I think, may somewhat be kind of familiar to the launch of Windows 95. But the the cynicism and the conspiracy around the vaccine is one of those big lies out there at the moment. And that has a real world effect. So take the UK, for example. 85% of people in the UK say they're ready for a vaccine, right? Now, that group are white British. If you are BAME British, it's 20% less. It's about 64%. There is a 20% gap between vaccine readiness with white British versus BAME British. That is the real world effect of a big lie, which is that the vaccine is a part of a government conspiracy to control everyone. You know, it's going to redesign your DNA 
Let me interrupt and disobey one of Neil's commandments that he put up in the classroom and push back a little bit, Ed, there, because surely it's not as simple as as right and wrong. Surely there is some kind of legitimacy, some kind of genuine concern amongst those communities about the vaccine. And it can arise, for example, that we know that early on it was the BME communities that suffered more in terms of COVID deaths. And it was a community that wasn't taken seriously in terms of its concerns. We know with research at the Wolf Institute that uh, very strictly observant religious communities also haven't yet digested the implications of COVID and the vaccine. So surely there's more to it than simply 20% who believe in the conspiracy theory. Have a look at the internet. Oh, I do. I do. And I, some of the stuff in there is horrific. But I'm just wondering whether, are you really saying that that 20% is just being taken in by the conspiracy theory? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, no, I'm not saying everyone in that 20% group has bought the big lie about the vaccine. But what I'm saying is the big lie about the vaccine has often as much airtime, if not sometimes more airtime than the truth about the vaccine. And there is a truth about the vaccine. We've got to be very careful here that we end up kind of accommodating views which are ultimately uh, very pernicious for society. I mean, I'll give you another one, Ed, the big lie about America, which is the Democrats can't win an election without rigging it. Now, you might think that was, you know, the pipework for that was laid by Donald Trump a few years ago. It wasn't. That started in 1986. That was when the Republicans started to lay the ground for a meme, a trope, a belief. Well, actually, 65% of Republicans believe that Biden didn't legitimately win. Okay, so it does have a real world impact. That was when they started to lay the groundwork for this notion that the Democrats can only win with election fraud. Okay, this stuff takes a lot of time. Ditto for Brexit. Brexit was not won in the you know six-week referendum in 2016. That started years ago, 20 years ago, maybe longer, in undermining the institutions. So I suppose what I'm saying, Ed, here, the point I want to make is I think we've got to call out the big lies And that is so important for young people, particularly. We've got to call out the big lies. And I think we've got to get better at spotting the pipework being laid for future big lies. I completely agree about the challenge of the big lie. And it's that balance. And Neil, help us here. You were trained in psychology, weren't you? And there's a natural human condition, isn't there? Kind of to scapegoat, to fall into the conspiracy theory. Or am I wrong? What there is, is a natural tendency to identify trusted sources of information and to identify non-trusted sources. We all have that. I'm, I'm inevitably more likely, from my political point of view, to believe something I read in The Guardian than The Telegraph. <laughs> but people in different communities will have different sources that they see as valid and real. And I think to confront the big lie Unfortunately, if Ed or I did it to some communities, we wouldn't have much credibility. I mean, when I'm talking to teachers, I usually work with colleagues who have been teachers because I think my credibility is to some extent not the same as a real teacher would be saying the same things. And so I think with those communities, it needs to be the trusted sources. And sometimes people like imams and so on are able to do that. And people naturally form groups which they identify for not only what they wear and how they speak and everything, but what they trust and what information they get. And so I think that's a crucial issue to break through this, is to make sure that you've got trusted sources 
that are really trusted by the relevant audiences. And Neil, you're absolutely right, by the way, about the message carrier. I completely agree with you. You know, we were talking about the vaccine hesitancy and vaccine scepticism within the BAME community. Who are the trusted sources? It's neighbours, it's friends, it's relatives. And I think knowing that from a public policy point of view and therefore being able to deploy a much more sophisticated approach. I mean, I was involved giving a bit of advice to the team that put together the advert for the BAME community on vaccine hesitancy that was broadcast across all channels at the same time. And they thought, that team thought very hard about who are the people that need to feature in this advert to deliver precisely the point you were making, Neil, is is the message going to have cut through? The other, I mean, spin-off point here, which is kind of interesting and I see all over the place now, which is trust and trusted sources, trusted relationships are all going local. Ed, what do you mean by local? This is something that we've seen emerge over the last 10 years, particularly the relationship between the employee and the employer. As uh, trust in business and trust in CEOs as leaders has kind of ebbed and flowed, what's grown is trust in the employer, particularly trust in the employer as a trusted source, Neil's point. You see this phenomenon all over the place. So for a long time, you know, the challenge that the government had with health policy and with the NHS was people would say, I trust my experience of the NHS. I trust my experience of my local GP or the nurse I have seen for an appointment, but I'm not sure I trust the health system. And you get this gap between the local experience and the abstract. And that, in my mind, is all about proximity. So it's about personal experience. The tactics, if you like, that we use at the Wolf Institute is to force our students to read the religious newspapers of another community. And so we try and challenge what Ed's just said, that problem that we listen to one another, the problem of insularity, whether it's communal or whether it's local, whether it's religious. But for example, getting a Jewish student to read the Muslim paper or a Muslim student to read the Jewish paper, it breaks through some of these stereotypes because they realize actually many of these concerns are the same. And it brings us back to the the point that Ed made at the very beginning, which is the amount of information that's out there and how we navigate that information. And we are drawing to a close. And I'd like to ask you each to nominate an example of, of a great communicator, somebody who actually managed to separate the wheat from the chaff, who made a difference, whether it's ancient or modern. Let's start with you, Neil. Well, I'm going to nominate uh, Stuart Hall, who was Professor of Sociology at the OU till the late 1990s, a Jamaican-born scholar. He did a lot of research on cultural identities, which is very relevant today. It was a complex subject, but he made it very clear and attractive. I found what he wrote very easy to comprehend. And I remember a colleague saying that students would come out of his lectures at OU Summer School saying, I think now I must do sociology. It sounds absolutely wonderful. <laughs> and and that was what he could do without dumbing down, you know, what were important concepts and so on. So, Ed, can I slightly change the rules a bit and give you two? I feel like I've been a bit negative. I've been a bit pessimistic and I want to give you a reason to feel positive about the world. So the first actually is a Renaissance <laughs> mathematician Copernicus. Now, Copernicus changed the way people think about the world, (laughs) fundamentally. It took quite a lot of time (laughs) for his theory 
to get through. It wouldn't, Neil, it wouldn't today in the world of mass media, I would hope to your earlier comment, I think people will galvanise around what Copernicus was saying about the Earth's place in the solar system and the universe a lot quicker maybe than they did. But Copernicus is a really interesting sort of modern day example, I think, of what's happened over the last year. We have realised that nature doesn't revolve around humankind. We're not at the centre of the universe and nature revolves around us. We're not in control of nature. And that is a big aha moment. I think that's a big insight for people, which is humankind doesn't control everything. We like to think we can, but we don't. I think the consequence of that in terms of managing the bigger challenge of us all, climate change, I think is very positive. Now, the second one, I said I would give you two. And actually, I'm also slightly cheating because he's a a late friend of mine, Harry Evans. Harry was one of the most gifted journalists of his generation. And in some respects, his passing marks a kind of high watermark of professional research, kind of fact-checked investigative journalism. And he wrote with such clarity and such precision and his storytelling about injustices of everyday people was uh, had real-world impact. And he knew what his mission was. His mission was about holding power to account. And he did that with great aplomb. And he was a great communicator. And I would really encourage you, if you haven't, to read his book, Do I Make Myself Clear? Why Writing Well Matters. And his compulsion to be precise, I think, is a lesson to all of us. Please believe me when I say that's all we've got time for this week. Thanks to my guests, Ed Williams and Neil Mercer. We'd love to hear from you at Naked Reflections. You can contact us at the Wolf Institute by email or on Facebook. Let us know what you think of the show. We've covered a wide range of subjects which you can find by delving into our back catalogue. And it's worth checking out our new podcast, The A to Z of the Holy Land, from Arab Design, all you need to know about the Holy Land in bite-sized chunks. You can also find the Naked Reflections podcast at nakedscientists.com slash reflections or wherever you access your podcasts. I'll be back next week with some more guests. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.